Hello and welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Dogs of War podcast. This episode will be an introduction of myself and expressing the overall mission and vision of this podcast. Military working dogs contribute to the defense of this great nation every day all over the world. Everyone involved in this program contributes to this effort. From the top down, there are program managers that oversee operations, people organizing and aiding the procurement process to purchase dogs, the canine trainers that train the dogs, instructors to train the handlers, and the kennel masters and trainers that pair the handler with the dog to create a military working dog team. This military working dog team is ultimately the product of this program, a force multiplier for the unit commander to utilize for mission accomplishment. And those missions vary from stateside installation support to security missions or missions forward deployed outside of the United States. The military working dog team has proven to be an invaluable asset in our current conflict. September 11, 2021 will mark 20 years of the global war on terror and is currently the longest armed conflict in the history of the United States. The conflict is not over. However, the presence of U.S. troops in areas like Iraq and Afghanistan are not as prominent as they were during the height of the war. During this time, we saw the largest deployment of military working dog teams to support operations since the Vietnam War. The military working dog became the best asset to detect explosives and combat the threat against IEDs. As the conflict continued throughout the years, military working dog teams became more experienced. They used lessons learned to better prepare themselves and future military working dog teams for future operations. The military working dog capabilities at its core stayed the same. However, techniques, tactics, and procedures became refined. The experiences from past handler generations and refinement throughout the years contributed to the foundation we see today. So a little about myself. My name is Marco Mendoza. I was a military working dog handler in the United States Marine Corps. I served 10 years and I'm currently back with the military working dog program as a civilian. Uh, my whole time in the Marine Corps, I was a military working dog handler at the MEF, the Marine Expeditionary Force. Um, I wasn't part of the Provost Marshal's office. I was mainly with the law enforcement battalions majority of the time, part of the military working dog platoons, right? So these are military working dog platoons that physically train and prepare to support combat operations. Uh, in my time, so I joined in 2011. Uh, I joined a little late. I was 22 years old, thought I had everything figured out, didn't have it figured out, decided to take a different career path. You know, I will never regret it. I'm grateful for the Marine Corps. I love everything about it. Um, I was grateful for the opportunity to get into the military working dog field. I had no idea about canine uh, going into the Marine Corps. I chose military police just because it was kind of like my third choice at the recruiter's office. And it was, you know, the only thing that was available within like six months, right? So I was in the delayed entry program for three months. And I chose military police Said, figure, hey, give it a shot, learn some stuff. Law enforcement is pretty cool, but I had no intention of being a canine handler going in. So fast forward a little bit, went to boot camp in San Diego, old Southern California, uh, normal MCT, Camp Pendleton, went over to Fort Leonard Wood for MP school. Um, I didn't have the pipeline process in MP school, so the pipeline process means that Hey, you go through your normal MOS progression pipeline, and when you get to MP school, you get selected to go canine, and then you keep going into basic handling course down at Lackland Air Force Base, right? So that's traditional pipeline. I didn't have that. Uh, they had the on-the-job training 
program. So I had to hit the fleet, which is the field, uh, get to my first unit, talk to the kennel master, and try to volunteer and just work my way into the kennel, show my worth, and do that and kind of get selected for the OJT process. So that's essentially what I did. Um, I checked into Camp Lejeune uh, late December, so it took me a whole year from boot camp all the way to hit the fleet. Uh, hit there, yeah, Camp Lejeune, uh, late December of 2011. Checked into MP Support Company under the 2nd MHG Marine Headquarters Group under the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, 2MEF. Um, at that time, you know, MP Support Company was just a little company of field MPs. Um, it actually also held the military working dog platoon for the MEF canine platoon at that time. And then a few months later, probably early early 2012 in the spring is when they stood up and started the law enforcement battalions. And so it was a brand new unit and the MEF MWD platoon kind of just got sucked up into that entity, right? So in that time frame, for me, there wasn't a lot going on. Um, I swore I got my first introduction into dogs. Um, the compound that we were at housed the small field MP platoon that we had uh, before the battalion. And then we had all the MEF MWD platoon, giant platoon, huge kennels, huge training area, lots of stuff going on there. And I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. During that time as a junior Marine, you know, I really looked up to what they were doing as canine handlers. They're really knowledgeable, true professionals, always busy. I mean, they're always out there just getting after it. And then if you compare that to what my platoon or my little squad was doing, yeah, we weren't doing anything. Um, and it's unfortunate because they were standing up the LE battalions. And so they were consolidating all the Marines from the East Coast that, that were not part of PMO, but were at different units and stuff. They were consolidating them back to the MP support company, ready for this new battalion just to get manpower. So, you know, battalion stand up. I finally get an opportunity to get uh, an OJT spot uh, later on, late that summer. So late 2012, I started OJTing. Um, as the battalion stood up, there was simultaneously, there was a whole platoon, the entire platoon deployed to Afghanistan early 2012. And unfortunately that was the deployment where Sergeant Joshua Ashley was killed in action, July 19th, 2012. So I personally never knew, uh, Sergeant Ashley, but I worked cl very closely and became really good friends with his good friends, uh, that he grew up with in the kennels. Um, definitely left an everlasting impression there at the kennels, uh, for all future generations. And it was later named Ashley Kennels in his name. So the fact that the unit already sustained, uh, the first killed in action, uh, first lost Marine within months of it being activated, it definitely hit, uh, pretty hard. It definitely hit kind of, you know, the reality for, you know, just the nature of military working dog handlers at that time in the war, just in general. Um, and then also for up and coming handlers, you know, there's still some guys in the OJT process. There's new handlers that were, you know, in training, eager to deploy. And then there's myself trying to get over there to be an OJT. Uh, so that time, you know, was, you know, July. I got over in the summer time frame to start OJTing. Um, at that time, half of that deployment was already coming back. Uh, and they were yeah coming back, getting situated, doing their combat leave. 
and then I was starting the OJT process. So my OJT process was pretty good. You know, I'm really grateful for it. It was a little different. I think we were kind of the first handlers in a while to actually like get more hands on and get a dog. So they assigned me a caretaker dog. Um, in the meantime, uh, it was, yeah, it was great, great time, great experience. Uh, definitely had to prove, prove yourself there continuously. Otherwise you're going to lose that spot because when you're doing the OJT process, you have a school spot, you're fighting for a school seat, or maybe they have a school seat to fill, but in the end, I mean, you can get dropped in any second. If they don't feel like you're a right fit, you screw up or you just, you're not going to, you don't exhibit the qualities of a military working dog handler. That's ultimately what the OJT process is for, to really give you a trial run, uh, to see what you're made of, see if you have these qualities, these traits, being confident, uh, able to pick up techniques, hardworking, um, yeah, everything. So I have a successful OJT process. I get down to handler's course um, about December, and then I graduate handler's course down at Lackland uh, early 2013. So upon my arrival back in Camp Lejeune, I immediately got assigned a military working dog, which was a specialized search dog named Shadow. Shadow Kilo 371. Great dog, stubborn, hard-headed, really seasoned, uh, but he still had his issues, you know. However, I didn't have SSD training formally at that time, but the plan was for me to get on a SSD course, a little local uh, USMC-sponsored SSD course. So the SSD course was ran and instructed by some Israeli SSD handlers that had a lot of experience, a lot of training knowledge. Um, yeah, and the Marine Corps at that time had a lot of excess SSDs, specialized search dogs, but not enough handlers. So essentially upon my, you know, graduation and arrival, you know, got to put on an SSD, uh, went through this course for about eight weeks, you know, really just, you know, build off of what the dog already knew, what I needed to learn, how to effectively employ this military working dog, the specialized search dog, you know, off-leash patterns, troubleshooting, e-collar work, radios, yeah, the whole gamut. It was a, it was a lot of stuff crammed into eight weeks, but overall, I mean, the Marine Corps gained about 20 SSD handlers because there's two courses going on. There's one on the West Coast and then there's another one on the East Coast. So in a short period of time, the Marine Corps gained a lot of handlers. So there was a success. And then after the course, you know, continued to work up, you know, listen to my trainers, picking their brain, getting a lot of training in, uh, finally working up for, you know, my validation. That way I can be an operational team. Uh, yeah, that was the, the whole, my whole summer for, you know, the summer of 2013 working up. Um, eventually we got wind and got notified that a deployment's coming in. We don't know who's going to go, uh, but I finally got validated. And then later on around that time, you know, I ended up being one of the four handlers that made it on this deployment. So we ended up deploying to Afghanistan in late 2013. I think we actually left uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving. So it was pretty quick, you know, so graduating handlers course in you know early 2013 uh, and then doing a whole workup, getting on a dog and at that an advanced dog going through an advanced course. And then by the end of the year, I'm already in the sandbox, right? So in my workup, I definitely had to go through YPG, Yuma Proving Ground, our kind of pre-deployment course to get more experience and really get 
that final go for Finex was a big deal back then. Um, and then immediately after graduating YPG, yeah, that following, I had one week, my family came out and that was kind of our goodbye and everything. And then, yeah, I had to ship out and get on the plane. So I deployed with three other handlers. Uh, two of them were seasoned handlers and one, another one was a, a freshly minted, you know, honest first deployment handler like myself. But the other two had didn't, yeah, they did a quick turnaround. You know, they were coming off of the last deployment. You know, they did their workup. They got their leave. They got validated on their dog. And sure enough, maybe going back out, we need you to, to go forward again. And they didn't hesitate whatsoever. So now get to, you know, my deployment, got, you know, deployment to Afghanistan, uh, went down to the Helmand province out of Leatherneck and Camp Donahue. Uh, late 2014 into, I'm sorry, late 2013 into 2014, right? Uh, I was grateful for the experience. You know, it went exactly uh, how I wanted it to. You know, it was, I got to utilize my dog. I got to work with a bunch of different people. I learned from my mistakes. It wasn't the best time. It wasn't the worst time. Um, it definitely could have been a lot worse, but I'm exactly grateful for the way it came out. Um, it was definitely an experience to remember. And yeah, it's one of the, most memorable, worst times, best times I've had uh, with my dog, and I wish I'd, I'd go back in a heartbeat. So the deployment was a good time. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, everything that I was taught prior to in my workup that my trainers uh, exposed me to, you know, it I was definitely prepared for it. There wasn't anything crazy that I saw that I just wasn't expecting or that wasn't ready to to handle. Um. Every off, every so often, you know, I got an opportunity to work with like a fellow handler and, you know, there'd be a couple operations that would go out and patrol and another handler would like another, one of the handlers wet deployed with us would be in the same area or we'd be on the same convoy or we'd, we'd be supporting the same group. Um, but for the most part, you know, it was really just independently working on your own. Uh, we were supporting mainly uh, a liaison team there uh, with a foreign country. Uh, I believe it's uh Georgian liaison team. If that sounds familiar, if you, if you know the group, you, you know what I'm talking about. So it's, it's a very interesting, good time. But in the end, um, yeah, this is a, the opportunity to support the capability is a good thing. You know, uh, we mainly supported a small group of Marines that were advising that group. Um, every time I went out and you know, I didn't, I hardly, I maybe had a few Marines with me. Everybody else was, you know, another person it was either they're british the afghan national army uh the georgians a couple marines and a corpsman and that was essentially it so it was a good time uh, one thing i wish i got more experience on beforehand before my deployment was just a little bit more familiarization getting in and out of you know like big vehicles and stuff you know like we did you know jumping in out of like the the rangers and the atvs I don't think I ever got into a Humvee before I deployed, you know, I rather deployed rather quickly, but in the end, you know, uh, my dog was fine in season, but I think, uh, it definitely would have helped. So that was one thing. Uh, I wish I had more gunfire exposure. You know, that's something that I preached to my handlers that I wanted them to have, you know? So when I became the chief trainer for uh third LE's military working dog platoon, I essentially wanted to be the chief trainer that I didn't have growing up. Right. Um, I definitely had my quick workup and quick turnaround. I didn't have 
severe issues with my my dog. However, I would have liked to get more gunfire exposure and dealing with that uh, with my dog, you know, just being a little bit more fluid. So I definitely saw that with my junior handlers. Uh, every time we were trying to get it on a, a range, uh, I just didn't see them really too comfortable with the weapons. You know, like we know that annual Marine Corps rifle qualification, one time on the range a year and one time shooting your pistol a year just isn't enough um, for the normal Marine Corps, right? So it's up to that platoon, the, that training uh, NCO to set up that ranges, get the familiar uh, familiarization ranges in, definitely get you know more rounds down range, get comfortable with your weapon systems where, I mean, there's no reason why you can't facilitate that. And that's one of the big things that came about over the few years and just over the course of the military working dog program is that a training requirement became uh, solidified as a TNR event for gunfire, right? And so gunfire has always been there for training and stuff, but this is really the one time where it's, it's solidified and, and a unit can't say no. Like we have a no joke requirement to fire, well, control in a military working dog while engaging threats. And that's just a testament to the previous generations, the previous handlers and their lessons learned and really fighting for those training requirements. But essentially everything else on the deployment was, was great. You know, I had, you know, everything that was told to me, I got to do, right? So I got to leave, uh, I left Leatherneck one time to go to Herat province to support um, an office, an expeditionary detachment of uh, the Office of Special Investigations, where essentially it's like the Air Force CID team. It was okay. It was pretty good. It was fun. Uh, definitely just enjoyed my opportunity to get off of Leatherneck and go to a different province, support a different different unit. And it was actually the first time uh, these guys have ever worked with a specialized search dog. They had an army handler before me. Uh, unfortunately, he you know, had a, suffered an injury and he had to get transported out. So they needed a quick fill to fill in this, uh, this spot. So program managers between program managers, you know, RC Southwest. Uh, I had to go from RC Southwest to RC West. And I mean, it was just a good experience. You know, let's uh, definitely a little... You know, felt kind of shitty because I'm leaving my boys on Leatherneck. You know, they're not there. You know, they're definitely a phone call away. But all of those things that we uh, we would try to teach, you know, junior handlers about maintaining an open communication line with your kennel master, um, establishing, you know, the low side uh, network and the high side network that we communicate, you know, the, the secret stuff. Uh, every, everything was there. You know, I had to be my own advocate, had to solidify my own training. I had to get with the EOD that was locally on that compound. I ran into another meth handler from uh, 1st Law Enforcement Battalion at the time, you know, down there. And they were supporting uh, special operations teams. So it was really good to see him. Wasn't expecting that whatsoever. But in the end, I mean, just getting out there and doing what you have trained to do is a good feeling, you know. And that definitely shows where the team supports and they appreciate, you know, what you're doing out there. And I mean, you hear stories all the time where handlers get attached to groups or attached to a team and they're not a team player. And it just it ruins that relationship between the handler and, you know, that supporting unit, that task force, whatever it is, that platoon, that squad. But also, most importantly, and beyond the single little scope is it ruins the the relationship between that group and other military working dog handlers. And you don't want to do that. Right. So if you are ever supporting someone 
uh, and you're providing that capability, remember you're an enabler, right? So you are there to support them. And then also they're going to support you in any way, shape or form to make sure that you're able to fulfill the support. So you definitely want to do good by yourself. You want to be able to help them. Uh, if you don't want to always say no, or I can't do this, or I need this and I need that, like definitely take care of your requirements, but don't, don't be a burden, right? Make it work, figure it out, be who you need to be for that person or for that group. Uh, cause in the end, Hey, you might not mix with them. That's cool. Or, you know, crap happens, whatever it is, you ruin that relationship. And now you have another dog team that's coming in to support. And now there's, there's like an elephant in the room. Someone just doesn't like each other or, you know what, last dog team didn't do this. You didn't do that. Always complaining, not working, whatever. And now this, this dog team has to build that relationship back up. And that's not, it's not a good thing. It's not fun. So don't do that. And that's even like, that's not just downrange stuff. That's like stateside stuff. Any handler that works on base, whether it's Air Force, Navy, you're always constantly building relationships. You're working with other agencies. You want to foster those relationships and you want to maintain them and you want to have a good working relationship because in the end, these are your networks, right? Everyone bounces off each other. Everyone helps each other out. We're all in the same fight. That's what you want to capitalize on and you don't want to ruin that. And that's just, everyone makes mistakes. We learn and we grow, but more so, I feel that that kind of responsibility is exhibited on junior service members sooner than later, especially if you're in the military working on the field. Um, and I've experienced it firsthand as a corporal of Marines, uh, going out independently, being my own advocate, being the subject matter expert. And I mean, that's what you want to do. You want to be that, that person to uh, express your capability and sell yourself and get used. And there's plenty of times and plenty of stories that we're going to get into later on. And you're going to hear where there's Lance corporals, you know, like coming out there, there's no other job out there where a Lance corporal is going to get put in that much responsibility and then going and getting attached to say a special operations group. Right. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's a, it's an awesome opportunity and there's phenomenal handlers that have done great things. And I'm excited to share that stuff in the future. So coming back from Afghanistan, we came back in July 3rd of 2014. After that, started assuming a little bit more of a, a senior role in the kennels, uh, trying to set up training, teach the new handlers. We're having a bunch of new handlers come in, um, and it just starts from the basics. You know, we have to teach them basic patterns, basic employment techniques, reading the dog's change of behavior, setting up the training lanes, getting them to training, getting them back from training, a lot of stuff, you know. Uh, it's definitely, it's definitely a good time. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, I really got more into that training role and I think that's where it really, really hit me where I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed watching dog teams progress. I enjoyed troubleshooting dogs. I enjoyed troubleshooting handlers and really like teaching them. I didn't know everything. So I still looked up to a lot of my senior handlers and my peers, uh, and then made a lot of mistakes. And then we learned from our mistakes. That's what makes us better. And then we keep moving forward. So leaving, coming back, uh, and now I'm in Lejeune. So I was there for another, about another year. I was about there for about a total of four years total. So in the summer of 2015, I started, you know, thinking of what's my next move? Am I going to get out of the Marine Corps or am I going to continue to, you know, stay in the military working dog field, stay in the Marine Corps? What's going to happen? Uh, so I'm trying to plan, you know, my exit, planning like I'm staying in and planning like I'm staying out or I'm getting out. 
Uh, luckily enough, you know, I was able to get down to YPG, Yuma Proving Ground, for that military working dog team deployment course again. And this time I came down as a trainer. I just happened to bring a dog. And yeah, by the end of that course, you know, I talked to the instructors, looking out for my next move. And it was just one of those things where it was good timing. You know, they needed uh, spots to fill. And I, I got orders down there. And that was great. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. Super grateful to be a part of that course. It's, uh, it's definitely unique. It's very sought after. It definitely has its place in military working dog history for sure. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to all the handlers that have gone through the course and their experience, uh, what they loved, what they didn't like, how it benefited them on their journey in the canine field on their, you know, operations. And as well, sit down with a lot of the instructors and just chit chat, catch up, uh, break down the course, the lessons learned, the, the core tasks that we were trying to teach and overall give you guys a glimpse of the course, um, and what it was because it's not there anymore. So now this is mid 2015 for me getting over to YPG, starting off as an instructor. I was there for three years, probably, you know, one of, you know, one of my highlights of my career. I loved uh, training, really, you know, enjoyed training, you know, different services, different handlers, and especially the Marine Corps handlers, but just in general, getting dog handlers prepared for what they're going to see or potentially see, uh, doing what we can to help them along their way. Um, and give them as much feedback and advice and expose them to an environment that they can't get anywhere else, right? You can't go train in Afghanistan, but you can go train in the desert of Yuma and you can get pretty close to it. So YPG being there, I think is where I grew the most as, you know, just like an NCO, a sergeant, uh, an instructor, a trainer. Yeah, I definitely grew a lot. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, my peers and the fellow instructors and the people that, I grew up in the community, can attest, they probably saw me grow a lot too, and uh, that's really good to see, and I'm grateful for that experience. You know, I know that I'm not, I'm not who I am today within the community without my experience there and what I got to see and got to experience. So I was able to do three years in Yuma. I uh, got to do some follow-on courses. You know, I came back to Lackland numerous times for, you know, Kennel Masters conferences, uh, different meetings to you know talk about training requirements, uh, combat tracking dog school, and then as well, you know took a deep dive into curriculum development, learning the training standards. Where I really dived into the rhyme and reason and how everything became the way it was. And when you take that time to really learn it, um, you see a different perspective, and it helps you prepare things for a better a better way. I mean, not a better way, but it helps you repair a little bit, a little bit better. Um, and then you also learn, you know, the ins and outs of the Marine Corps and, you know, their, their rules and regulations and all that crap. But in the end, super grateful for that experience. It was phenomenal. And I was able to take that experience of what I've learned, uh, there in the course and head over to Okinawa, Japan, third law enforcement battalion, uh, with third Marine Expeditionary Force. So I'm going back to the MEF. Uh, this time, you know, to help hopefully stay in the kennels, right? Uh, and that's what I was hoping, and that's what I got. So as soon as I got there, um, definitely got pulled into the kennels right away. Uh, it wasn't guaranteed at the time, 
However, you know, with the right people in the right place, you know, they were able to pull me in and phenomenal time. Um, great experience being the chief trainer for that platoon. I will never, ever <laughs> talk crap about, you know, Okinawa ever again because there's always a thing uh, when Japan students would come to the course at YPG. I mean, there's always a problem, right? The TAD was jacked up. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have the gear. They weren't prepared or whatever. But in the end, when you really understand the situation they're in out there uh, and training requirements and the hurdles you have to go through to get training done, it's definitely a beast. It's a different It's a different environment. Uh, and it's definitely something that's going to test you. It's going to test your planning abilities, your coordination abilities, your overall everything i mean just it, it it's ridiculous i can't even explain it we'll deep dive into that as well later on in further episodes but it definitely challenged me um, in different ways and i definitely grew in different ways and there's a hundred things i would have done different whether it's in japan or in yuma or anywhere else but the beauty about just growing as a person an nco a marine a trainer a handler is that we learn from our mistakes and we keep going forward and we get better every day. And then the biggest thing is passing that stuff on to your predecessors and your junior handlers. That way they can learn from your mistakes and they can make your account better. Uh, the biggest thing that I always preached is where, well, I felt is like anywhere I go, I want to leave it better than what I found it. Um, yeah, and I, I think I did pretty good or tried to at least. Yeah, and it was never the best handler or the best trainer, instructor or anything like that. But in the end, like I tried to do what I could at that time to the best of my ability for the people that were needing me, right? So my handlers needed me to set up training for them. Like that's, that's what I'm going to work for. Um, and then, yeah, I can't, I, I can't speak too much on that. It's just so much stuff. It's extremely overwhelming. Okinawa was a different beast, a different animal. And then being in charge of, um, training for over 30 military working dog teams and handlers and all the training requirements and it's a bunch of crap it was it was a good time that's all i can say so coming out of okinawa i got there i left the ypg in october of 2018 checked into okinawa japan i was there for two years as the chief trainer and then ultimately that's just where i decided to take my exit out of the marine corps so as of right now, I'm about nine months out in my transition. I'm still dealing with my transition. I'm still working through, you know, solidifying my, I guess, footprint job, wherever I'm at, get situated. You know, I just, you know, did a lot of moving around, finally got situated in my house. And I mean, it's just part of the transition. You know, um, I was lucky enough to kind of prepare. I've exited rather quickly. Um, yeah, it was, wasn't as... Uh, as planned as I wanted it to, but you know, COVID was going on, uh, right in the middle of 2020 and yeah, I had to make a quick decision. I had to get off the Island in 30 days. So it happened very fast, but I think I did pretty well. Uh, got terminal. I'm thankful for my family to support me, um, in my few months of the transition while I was getting situated and getting into back into the workforce so, yeah, I was luckily within 30 days of my EAS, I was able to work or roll into a GS civilian position and, yeah, continued to work into the civilian position I am in right now back with the military working dog community. So in the end, 
right now I can't complain. You know, I'm, I'm still working through my crap, figuring it out, just like anybody else that's exiting out of the military, doing the veteran thing, uh, getting situated. As far as my experience as of right now, I can tell you or anybody that is thinking about exiting uh, the military is plan as much as you can. Sometimes you can plan everything to the T and then that plan will go out the window. But planning is better than nothing, right? A plan for something is better than having a plan for nothing. So what now? The reason or the idea for this podcast just came around the time of my transition. You know, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. Uh, there's always, you know, there's there's veteran um, podcasts focusing on the veteran community and uh, different veteran experiences. There's a special operations uh, podcast. There's military history podcast. There's a podcast for everything nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of working dog podcasts, sport dogs, training in general, but there's nothing really specifically for the military working dog community. And so that's what I wanted to really dive into and provide, you know, just with the nature of how the, the Marine Corps um, split their program in half. You know, I grew up at the MEF uh, side versus the PMO side in the Marine Corps. And I know I looked up to a lot of senior handlers. There's a lot of handlers that have gone downrange and utilized the dog and have done phenomenal things. And I learned from their experiences. I learned from their stories. And unfortunately, the new handlers that are coming in, and it's not just in the Marine Corps, but it's in the Navy, Army, and the Air Force, that as experience rotates out, these new handlers never get to hear any of those experiences or stories or their lessons learned or their tips and tricks or anything. Um, everyone's story, someone can pull something out of it. Something can help them. Um, and you never know what that could be. It could be something simple. It can be something big. But in the end, like someone can get something out of everyone's story. One of the big inspirations to do this podcast is because of the the MEF military working dog platoons. And unfortunately, they're no longer around, but we've had years of deployments, years of experience that are now just moved on, right? They've moved on to their Marine Corps careers. They transitioned out of the military successfully. And there's just a lot of information there that could help future handlers. And if they're willing to share that, come forward and just talk about their time on leash, I think that would really greatly help the, the Marine Corps, other handlers and all the services we, especially at the MEF, you know, we walk in the wake of uh, some pretty senior handlers and great stories and, you know, deployments. But I mean, everyone, you know, not everyone gets a, a really Gucci deployment and uh, gets out there. And uh, some people will go forward and do the job that they need to do. And it's, you know, it's nothing fancy, it's nothing crazy. Um, and it's exactly what the Marine Corps asked them to do. Um, it's uh, just like the Mew, right? There's a lot of Handlers that get on the Mew, they get on ship, they travel around, they experience a lot of different things, they train with different countries, they get on standby. They're doing exactly what the Marine Corps is asking them. Uh, everyone that is at a kennel, whether it's the Marines, Navy, Army, or Air Force, you are training, you are getting ready to be an operational asset for that kennel master, ultimately to support that base or that unit commander. You're doing exactly what it is asked of you. So train hard and train your dog. So this isn't just going to be Marines. You know, we're all going to pay a tribute because of the the way the MEF and the Marine Corps shut down half of their program. However, this is for everyone, right? There's plenty of handlers that have gone through Army, Navy, Air Force. 
that have contributed to this incredible history of the military working dog program. And this will be a great platform for them to share their story and maybe bring some inspiration to their junior handlers, their predecessors, or new up-and-coming handlers that are coming up in the program. Additionally, we will still take a deep dive into military working dog history from World War II to Vietnam. The mission of this podcast is to educate and inspire past, present, and future military working dog handler generations. And the vision is to deliver the history of the military working dog program through the experiences of military working dog handlers from all branches of the military throughout a long history of selfless service and employment in various functions all over the world. We're going to cover a lot in this podcast. I'm excited for the journey ahead and I hope you tune in. As always, I look forward to hearing your story. Thank you and take care.